Hey, it's Gregory here. And just before we start the show, we would love to hear about you, who you are, what stories you want to hear, maybe what you like and don't like about the show. Please go to npr.org slash podcast survey to complete a very short survey. We really want to hear from everyone, even if you're a brand new listener or an old hand to the show. So that's npr.org slash podcast survey, all one word. And thanks. You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. I thought it won't be easy physically. You see, Matt, and the only thing I thought is the physical part, right? So I thought it's not going to be easy, but I can do it. I can do it. Last time on Homefront. And at the very beginning of this episode, he'll tell me, I'm not angry of you. I just see everything red. I'm just angry. And then I told him, what would you do if something does that to your girls? And then his answer was, well, I'll ask him if their spouse is a, is a veteran. Just to find, you know, if it's a veteran, then um, it's okay. And I said, no, it's not okay. I said, it's not excuses. We've been telling the story of Alicia and Matt Lammers. If you've not heard the earlier episodes, you might want to go back and listen to Battle Rattle and Battle Lines. In those episodes, we heard how Alicia fell in love with Matt and became his official VA caregiver, something he needed as a triple amputee. But she discovered he also had a brain injury and PTSD and other behavior that she couldn't explain. Patterns of forgetfulness and anger and violence. And then he started being violent toward her. She didn't know what she was still doing there. I wondered that so many times. Why am I here? Why am I still here? Love? Yes, I loved him. Also, the more I got to know him, the more I got to have the feeling of, who else is going to do what I do? He needs someone here. Alicia felt a duty to stay with Matt which is not unusual for people in an abusive relationship, but the duty she felt was not just to him or to the relationship or to their families. She also felt a duty to her country. She, by staying, is making good on a promise the rest of us made to Matt when he signed up. We have signed off on the laws that say we will take care of him afterwards. That's Quill Lawrence, NPR's Vets correspondent, and my co-host on our Homefront series. I don't want to sound all waving the flag here, but we're all on the hook for this. This is something that we have promised to do. The care that the U.S. government has promised to give veterans after they come home should not require the spouse or loved one of a veteran to stay in a dangerous situation. But Alicia was not sure what else to do. It's easy to just look at it and say, oh, just get out of there. The problem with this is that no one's saying, Elisa, get out of there. You know, we'll make sure he's taken care of. So why is that? Where was the Department of Veterans Affairs in all this? Today, we put that question to the VA on the third and final chapter of Alicia and Matt's story. Here's Quill. Alicia was stuck. What makes a woman stay with the man who's abusive? And is choking you out. I want to introduce you to the guy who helped her get unstuck. 
My name is Sergeant Major Retired Jesse Acosta. I served 34 years in the United States Army. I'm 6'1", I'm 250 pounds. I work out every day. So even though I'm blind, I still try to keep some type of shape to stay in shape. For those of us not as familiar with Army titles, Sergeant Major is as high as it gets for non-commissioned officers. So for troops on the ground, this is a really high rank. This is who they listen to. An explosion in Iraq left him blind. I'm completely blind. I suffer from TBI, traumatic brain injury. So I, I didn't know what the hell was going on from one day to the next. After he left the Army, he ends up working at this nonprofit that helps injured veterans get their independence. And that's how he ends up meeting Matt Lammers. He was hit by a bomb. I was hit by a bomb. He lost three limbs. I lost my eyes and, and uh, suffered some other massive, severe uh, injuries. When he learned that Matt also had a brain injury and PTSD and had struggled with addiction. OMG, I completely understand that. He knew that Matt needed help. And um, we attempted to get him the help he needed. His organization found Matt a treatment program. And then Acosta took this extra step. He flew out to Tucson to personally take Matt to that program. And for Alicia, this visit meant a lot. Sergeant Major Acosta, he came to Tucson. And I remember him coming to see us and trying to get Matt. And he didn't even bring his service dog, his guide dog. To me, it meant, it meant so much that he cares so much about us. So when I drop him off at the hotel, we talk for hours and hours about what was truly happening at home. So that was the first time that I opened up 100% about everything happening to, to that point. And he asked me, do you have a phone with you? And I say, yes. He says, look up secondary PTSD. Just Google it and read it out loud. So I did that. And I remember reading and crying and cr and I cry till my eyes were like bubbled. <laughs> but that day I just let go of so many things. No woman, no person should ever go through what she's gone through, ever. Jesse Acosta, the sergeant major, was able to tell her what no one else could. He was able to tell her, your survival cannot be the price of taking care of Matt. And she could only hear that from someone who knew that sacrifice. I got to talk to someone who was a veteran, and it was telling me, yes, it can be PTSD, but you need to take care of yourself. He was the only one who had the authority to tell her that so that she could hear it. It's like, this is not right. Like, what am I doing to myself? It takes some time for Acosta's words to translate into action. The abuse continued. Until finally, she calls a domestic violence shelter and talks to a counselor there. And I told her, I think I'm ready to leave. But I feel guilty for leaving. So I know he has a brain injury, has issues memorizing things. And I don't, maybe because he's in a wheelchair, but I feel guilty. So I need to plan it. So I created a binder with all his passcodes, how to pay the rent, how to pay this, how to do that, how to everything I put on the list. And I went ahead and buy supplies for a whole month. I bought six cases of water and I pre-opened every single bottle of water. Because it has carpal tunnel, he can't open them. 
So I pre-opened every single one of them. I said, at least the waters are open for a month. I pre-made meals, put it in the freezer. I put everything, the dishes down so he can reach everything. And I made a list, a long list of the things I needed to take care of so I can leave. And I told her, I may sound like an excuse, but I need this for him, but more for me. Because I need a peace of mind. I don't want to feel guilty. And the next morning at four in the morning, I woke up and said, today is a day. I gotta go. She packs up her car and she leaves. She ends up at the domestic violence shelter. And there she starts going to group therapy. But then she says she has this moment in therapy where she realizes, I don't know how to talk to these civilian women with their civilian problems. Yes. A lot of spouses were there because they were like, my husband is making me feel worthless or he's always calling me names or he's aggressive every single time he drinks or, you know, issues like that. This is a time in my life that I'm blocking myself from a lot of emotions. So I'm not allowing myself to sympathize with anyone because I'm listening to these stories and I'm like, I'm not saying anything. I'm not... But in my mind, I'm like, I can't believe she left for that. Like a lot of people in group therapy, Alicia found herself comparing her own situation to everyone else's. And to her, what happened with Matt just felt so much more extreme. The armed patrols, clearing houses, doing one-on-one suicide watches to keep Matt from hurting himself, only to be hit with Matt's sudden violent rage. None of the other people talked about things like that. Nobody ever talked about having a gun on their heads. But nobody should go through the things they went through or I went through. But I did feel different. The way she felt different, it reminds me of the disconnect that a lot of veterans feel trying to re-engage with civilian life. Veterans will say they just don't know how to tell their stories of war to people who've never served. And that's the same way Alicia felt. Like, in my mind, they weren't ready to hear my story because it was so shocking. Alicia stayed silent. It was hard to eat. I got the plate in front of me, and I cried so many times because I didn't know what he was eating. Who was preparing his meal... Um, I worry a lot. Hey, Matt, it's Quill. Are you in there? Homefront, we'll be back after this break. Matt, are you in there? This message comes from NPR sponsor Blue Air, award-winning air purifiers designed in Sweden. With people spending more time in their homes, their Blue Pure Auto models are both practical and stylish, automatically adjusting speed to keep pollution levels in check, as well as offering multiple Swedish-inspired fabric options to match your space. In addition, their high performance is combined with whisper-silent operation that uses less energy than a light bulb. Learn more at blueair.com. An internal investigation found that a cop with the California Highway Patrol sexually harassed 21 women. But those findings were kept secret 
until a new state transparency law passed. We dug through hours of tapes to find out what happens to officers who cross the line. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. We're back with Rough Translation's Homefront. I'm Quill Lawrence. The first time I went to meet Matt in person was 11 days after Alicia had walked out. Hey, Matt. This recording is from October of 2016. At this point in time, I didn't know Alicia or Matt. I'd never met either one of them in person. I was friends on Facebook with Matt, and I'd been thinking about doing a story on him. But then I saw that his wife had left him, and his posts on Facebook started getting really dark. And so I jumped on a plane to Arizona. Hey, man. Hey. Oh, did I wake you up? Obviously. Oh, no, you're good. Sorry. Sorry about that. Matt's in his wheelchair, shirtless. He looks exhausted. I'm just kind of horrible. Insomnia. Oh, like three or four, and I finally was able to lay down. He says he has almost nothing in his fridge to eat. And he can't drive to the store because he's lost so much weight that his prosthetic arm, which he uses to drive, doesn't fit anymore. Great. I just feel horrible. And you came all this way. I just, I'm sorry. No, no, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. And so at that point, I mean, I just kind of say, okay, I'm going to drive you to the grocery store. He's been living off a big bag of rice and bananas. And we head straight to the aisle with muscle milk. Banana cream, chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. Knockout chocolate. I think that's all the vanilla ones I have. Oh, vanilla is what you're after? Yeah. Yeah. Life center. My main diet. (laughs) We're finally just headed into the laxative aisle. What are you looking for? Prunalax. Seems to work the best. Prunalax? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they send me all this stuff, but it doesn't seem to do anything. Oh. Prunalax actually it does seem to help. Constipation is actually a problem for a lot of people who use wheelchairs because you're sitting down all day. My buddy's looking for laxatives called Prunalax. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, really? Yeah, you might see it in Walgreens, but I haven't seen it yet. Long, long time. But, and it's just prunes? It's some prunes. Okay. Thanks a lot. At the time, I'm just thinking, how can that be that a twice combat decorated Iraq vet with only one arm left can need a reporter from New York to come and buy him, like, laxatives in the supermarket? Are you on paid meds? Um, yeah. So, yeah, when I had the baby, I was so constipated. The skin of the apple is what helped me. Really? I ate that, yeah, it just okay. helped push. But what I, I didn't know, know then, yeah. on that trip, was that Matt had called the VA the week before yeah. to tell them that Alicia had left. And the VA's only response, as far as we've been able to tell, was to stop her checks. They cut off Alicia's caregiver stipend. Matt says the VA did not send someone out to check on him. The VA also didn't call Alicia. They didn't even call to get a status report on Matt. It's one of the biggest issues. But, um, yeah, but, okay, guys, sorry. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thank you. 
this whole time in the grocery store, in my head, I'm still stuck on that question. Like, where was the VA through all this? Sergeant Major Acosta has a lot of questions, too. And I'm talking about the VA. Why didn't they reach out to her and, and reel her in knowing what they were going through with Matt? Matt was on record as being abusive to VA doctors and staff. He had been formally reprimanded by the Tucson VA. I met you at close to rock bottom then. Yes, yes. I would go out, I could have pleasant conversations here and there with people, and, but I was always, I just, I felt like every muscle in my body, and even my brain, if that's possible, if that makes sense, it just felt like it was always tense or under pressure of some sort. And so the slightest thing, unfortunately, and at least you would catch the worst. This conversation I had with Matt, this happened after I'd met Alicia and learned just how violent things had gotten. I asked Matt about the time he choked her until she lost consciousness. How, how often do you think about that? Uh, probably as much as Iraq, so it does come to mind quite a bit. Out of guilt, the fact that I hurt my best friend. I tried to ask him more questions about it. But you're also, I mean, it... You excuse me, I just got nauseous. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do what you need to do. Let me take... Oh, I'm sorry. Go right. And that's what I'm talking about. Everybody thinks that, oh, you're in the hands of the VA, you're going to be well taken care of. I beg to differ to the T. I took the sergeant major's questions and my own to the head of the caregiver program. Meg Cabot. Hey, Meg, it's Quill. Hey, Quill, how are you? I've talked to Meg Cabot a lot over the years. I am the senior advisor to the secretary at the Department of Veterans Affairs for families, caregivers, and survivors. That's her new position created this year. You can think of Meg as the most senior VA official whose job is to focus on civilians. She started out as a social worker at what's now Walter Reed Medical Center. She's actually been leading the caregiver program since it started a decade ago. So I asked her Acosta's question. Why wouldn't the VA have done more to reel in someone like Alicia? Um, you know, I think there's probably multiple components to this. I don't know that the medical team knew that she was in as much trouble as she was. Individuals are very good at hiding what's really going on. You know, it's, it's very, very hard to talk about these things. It's very hard to ask for help. It might be hard for anyone stuck in a violent marriage to ask for help. It's even more complicated to ask for help from a government department that's mandated to take care of veterans. Veterans, not civilians. And that mandate has dogged the caregiver program since it started in 2011. Meg says in the beginning there was a lot of pushback from VA staff about why they were focusing on civilian caregivers at all. I'm not her social worker, I'm his social worker. Why are we spending money on this program? Wow. Sometimes I would hear it from, from staff at medical centers, but I also heard it from staff even, you know, here at central office. 
Which brings us to the predicament that Alicia found herself in. For so long, she was afraid to tell the VA about the abuse because she thought they'd kick her off the program. The VA knew this was a problem. We heard unfortunate stories about caregivers who were staying in their relationship because they needed the income from the the stipend. I mean, in, in fact, that's why, you know, we changed the regulations and the new regulations state... Now, caregivers who leave because of domestic violence can get their stipend for a few more months, so they have a chance to get back on their feet again. Since when? Is that along with the new... Yeah, so that, that didn't start until October, but that was certainly part of what we knew we had to fix in the regulations pretty early on. That's October of 2020. It took a decade before Congress managed to fix the problem that the VA knew about early on. Because as soon as this was set up, you saw that it could be a trap. Yes. The trap for Alicia wasn't just that she needed the stipend. It was also that she took her responsibility as Matt's caregiver seriously. She saw herself as part of his treatment team. So I asked Meg... Did the VA see Alicia that way? Is that caregiver sort of part of the vet's treatment team now? Or what is, how do you define their role? You know, I I mean, as a social worker, I would tell you that clinically that caregiver is, of course, always a part of that treatment team. Now, it's, it's very hard to have that caregiver be a part of the treatment team for a variety of reasons, including time. The provider might not have that much time. Yeah, it takes it takes time to talk to families and to answer their questions and to really include them in all of the work that's going on. Alicia saw herself as much more than just the family member. We are the VA first responders. We are there. We're with the veteran 24-7. They need to give us the importance that we have. I don't want you to throw flowers on me or send me a certificate. Um, but recognize that we are very important piece on their care. We are part of their care team. Alicia spent more than two months at the shelter. And I needed that time for Alicia to heal. Because a lot of things happened through the years. I started to exercise a lot and running every afternoon. And it, Tucson has a lot of trails. And they're nice trails with cactuses and things like that. It sounds silly now that I think of, but I remember they invited us to this dance therapy and they gave us a piece of fabric. So I remember picking a very hot pink, almost fuchsia, and they play music. You needed to move from side to side, just feeling the music, closing your eyes, making circles with this piece of fabric around you. And I remember I moved like back and forth three, four times and then I started crying. All these many emotions just came to my mind and it just crying and crying and I let go of this, uh, whatever was going on with me. Alicia still thought about Matt, how he was getting by without her. And then he sent her a note on Facebook that surprised her. The apology he gave me recognized all the things, well, not all the things, but a lot of things that he did wrong. So he's not telling me, 
hey, hey, babe, I miss you, come back. He didn't do that. They said, Alicia, I have been thinking about it. I'm so sorry. I hurt you. I get it. I know why you left. And I will understand if you would never forgive me. I'll understand if you never came back. That's the way he approached me. They messaged some more, and he invited her to come over. She found herself hoping to see he was okay, partly because she still loved him, but also to assuage her guilt over leaving. He would play something on the TV, ask me, should we eat anything? And I'm like, no, I don't want anything. I don't want water. I don't want to eat anything. I was just like sitting here waiting for something to happen. And then it went well. Okay, I came back the next day. The next day, Matt still seems okay. A week later, she spends the night. When he asked me, I don't want to push you to do anything you don't want, but do you think you're considering and moving in again? And I say, yeah, I'm considering. Did people try to talk you out of moving back in? That's Rough Translation producer Jess Jang. Like your mom or your therapist or any of the women at the shelter or your counselor? Um, no. One woman did ask, aren't you afraid of going back? And I was like, well, yeah, but I try to reassure that I was being cautious. You know, I'm being cautious. I'm not taking all my stuff yet. I'm just going to bring my backpack and, you know, that's it. When she talked to civilians, she'd tell them things like, I'm protecting my boundaries. Well, I was more trying to convince them that I'll be okay, more than me. I didn't know if I'll be okay, but I will keep telling them, you know, I'm giving him this one last chance. I wanted them to know that I had a plan, that I kind of knew what I was doing. But the reality is that you won't know what's going to happen. So she goes back to him. She says he's never violent with her again. But he's still not the Matt she first fell in love with. He's moody and prone to depression. And then comes a crisis that leads to a breakthrough. It started when he couldn't sleep. And then he's having these UTIs. That turns into a bladder infection. Which sounds small, but it becomes this constant source of pain and frustration that lasts years and takes over their lives. And now I can see him being angry, suicidal, and then he's depressed, and then he's crying, and then he's yelling, and then he hates me, and then he loves me, and then he needs a hug, and then he's acting up again. And I'm not used to that. It's happening in one day, all day long, for several days now. So it's like something's really wrong right now. It used to be she could anticipate his down days. Remember, she had this whole calendar of his mood swings, so she would know that depression was coming in the winter, and it would be followed by some better days in the spring. But now it feels like all that is happening in two days. One day, Matt got so agitated that she called 911, and he was sent to a psych ward at a civilian hospital. I saw Matt throwing urine on the floor. Uh, yelling at nurses, refusing to eat his food, throwing the food on the floor, yelling out names to the, the staff. He had no control over himself or the, the whole situation. Alicia thought Matt might be institutionalized. 
we're gonna assign the state to care for him. I didn't want that to happen. That would be very, very devastating. And I knew they were going that way. So I feel like I needed to be his voice. Alicia does something that she's never really done before. She goes to the civilian psychiatrist at the hospital. And I told her, I'm going to bring facts. And this year this happened, and that year that happened. And for two hours, she just let me talk and talk and talk. And this psychiatrist gives her time. And then she said, well, there is no cure. But I do have a diagnosis. I was happy when she told me. Because we finally had a name. Rough Translations Homefront, back after this break. Hey, it's Gregory again. Just uh, wanted to remind you not to forget to tell us who you are and what you like and don't like about the show. Go to npr.org slash podcast survey. It's all one word, podcast survey. Takes less than 10 minutes, and we'd appreciate your voice being part of that mix. So that's npr.org slash podcast survey, and thanks. We're back with Rough Translation's Homefront. I'm Quill Lawrence. Alicia said she spoke to the psychiatrist for almost two hours, and she told her all the clues she'd learned about Matt's condition. The spending sprees, the obsessive swimming, the insomnia followed by bouts of depression where he wouldn't shave or leave the house. She tells her about the neurologist who thought Matt had a traumatic brain injury. She talks about the drugs, even the violence. And when she laid out all these facts, she was trying to keep her emotions out of it, just like they're two doctors discussing a case. Because I was trying to speak for him instead of being the wife or the caregiver complaining. I was trying to give facts about... Um, behavioral terminology, names of medications, and what happened with it. And the psychiatrist turns to her and says, there's a name for this condition. He's manic depressive bipolar, and he's cycling. So when you don't treat bipolar disorder, it started to get worse. So if you cycle every six months from being depressed to being hyper, then you start cycling every three months. And then every two months. And then it's every day. So it escalates because you're not medicated. You're not under control. And your brain is tricking you. The doctor convinces Matt to take medication to control his cycles. So he took it. He had sleep deprivation for five years. And within three days, he was already sleeping eight hours straight. This is the first time in years... He woke up in the morning and started playing 80 music. Like 80s music. I can never be in a bad mood listening to 80s music. I love the 80s. I love that time period. I still remember playing Cindy Lauper on the boombox. Yeah, Cindy Lauper. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what's going on? And he said, hey, babe, how you doing? And I'm like, good morning, I'm doing okay. And he said, come outside. Isn't it a beautiful day? He's playing songs and he's all excited. And like, oh my God, like he's back. Like I knew he was back that morning. 
So was this a turning point for Matt and Alicia? Before diagnosis, after diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing to me. This is a a decade after his catastrophic injury, mm-hmm. and I really think this is the moment he starts healing, and they start healing from the wounds that happened to them together. But it's not a sure thing. What they're dealing with is it's not over. His injuries, physical, mental, and emotional, her trauma, and that's what pains me is that it's it's sort of saying, well, this is the process, and someone like Alicia has to sacrifice as much as Matt while caring for him. I mean, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. I'm wondering about, um, I mean, kind of hypothetical here. If instead of Alicia being Matt's caregiver, if the VA had somehow paid for a professional home aid, somebody would have done all of the tasks or many of the tasks of taking care of Matt, but without the emotional involvement. Well, I think everyone agrees that the care from a loved one is better. This is talking about, you know, people who've studied this agree that no one can ever know Matt's needs as well as his spouse or, you know, a family member who's there all the time. Well, yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. Are you saying, okay, the loved one's care is better, but the rest of that sentence is, it's better for the vet? Yeah. God, you couldn't ever tell anyone to do what she's done. And and so I feel really conflicted telling her story because are we apologizing for his abuse and his behavior? No, we don't want to be doing that. We don't want to excuse it. We don't want to say that it's right that Alicia stayed. But we can't make that decision for her. She She's made it. I didn't consider myself being part of the military, but there is one event, a couple of events that make me feel like, oh, wow, I am part of this organization. And the first time was with General Beagle in South Carolina, gave me a poem by this unknown author. And this poem talks about military wives. And I remember he gave me the paper and said, Mrs. Lemmers, don't read it in front of me because I cry every single time. But, you know, being Alicia, I don't listen to men. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, hearing her saying she doesn't listen to men is so great. I had read the first two sentences. It's like, I'm already crying. He's crying. And it just feels so good that he's giving me this credit that I didn't feel I deserved. Hello, Jess. Um, I got the poem that I talked to you about. It's called The Silent Rings. I wear no uniforms, no blues or army greens, but I am in the military and the ranks rarely seen. I have no ranks upon my shoulders, salutes I do not give, but the military world is the place where I live. Behind the lines, I see the things needed to keep this country free. My spouse makes the sacrifice, but so do our kids and me. One of the lines that always makes me cry is where it says, My spouse makes the sacrifice, but so do our kids and me. 
because it's true. Just being by next to him, witnessing every every step to recover. This bumpy, bumpy road to recover. And it's really, really, it's a sacrifice. I'm glad she's been thanked and I'm glad she she's happy to get that thank you. But it just pains me that it's just more encouragement for her to stay in this situation that no one should have to endure. It reminds me of there are these medals that they give out in combat and there's a certain level of medal that you get for doing your duty and there's a certain level of medal that you get for doing your duty really well. And then there's this level of medals which get up to the you know, medal of honor that you get for doing something that no one could reasonably ever have asked you to do, to expose yourself to danger and to threat of harm and threat of death. And this is another civ mill divide thing. If we were going to write a sort of a glossary of things you never say to someone, like you never say happy Memorial Day because that's about people who died at war. And you never say, or I've learned from being corrected by veterans, that you never say someone won a medal. You know, it wasn't a happy day. Those medals are always given out because someone did something that they never should have had to do. Uh, so it's it seeming to me more and more appropriate that if you were going to award a Medal of Honor level kind of appreciation for what you do after the war to help veterans come home, I mean, we could pin one of those on Alicia. For me, the most important point is that Alicia and Matt want their story to be told. What they've always said is that if another veteran or another spouse of a veteran can hear this and have an easier time than we did, that's what we want. God, these two know pain like very few people I've ever met. And they want someone else to feel a little bit less pain than they did. Join us next week as Homefront continues with a very different story of crossing the civilian-military divide. The Pentagon decides it needs an ambassador to Silicon Valley. That's next week on Rough Translation's Homefront. Today's episode was produced by Jess Jang. Our editor is Lou Okowski. The Rough Translation team includes Luis Treas, Matt Ozug, and Justine Yan, Our intern is Alicia Chan. Many people listened, civilians and veterans, to early drafts of this piece. Thank you so much to Marianne McCune, Robert Krowich, Bruce Oster, Bob Little, Andrew Sussman, Liana Simstrom, Jenny Lawton, Sana Krasikov, Laura Smitherman, DJ Skelton, Victor Iveas, Nora Cronin, Kristen Kramer, Dr. Andy Anson, Dr. Drew Helmer, and Lawrence Carter-Long. The Rough Translation executive team is Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, and Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Chris Turpin and Vicki Walton-James. Nicole Beamsterbor is our senior supervising producer. Bryn Winterbottom fact-checked this episode. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. 
retired Army Captain Kimo Williams composed Homefront's theme music with additional music from John Ellis. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Homefront from Rough Translation. Rough Translation.